you should have a copy of the new catechism. So I just got handed one of these this morning, as you did. So that's very exciting. Um, what I'm hoping we can do this morning is finish the last couple questions for the section on the Apostles' Creed, and then begin the section on prayer and moving toward the Lord's Prayer. So this new uh, revised edition has, I think rightly, made a bit of a rearrangement and taken the sacrament section and broken it out and put it at the end of the section on what we believe. So we've already covered the sacrament section, right? But we need to go back to page 55 in your new book. My notes are keyed to the old question numbers, so that'll be fine. Um, but we're going to pick up with question 119 on page 55. What do you know about the unending resurrected life of believers? I know that it will be an eternal life of joyful fellowship with our triune God, together with all his saints and angels, singing his praises and serving him in the renewed creation. What is our hope? What is our destiny? Last time we were talking about the resurrection of the body and the goodness of the body and the way that that shapes how we think about and encounter and experience our bodiliness even now. But we need to keep in mind that the horizon of our Christian hope, our sense of who we are and where we're headed and what we're for is eschatological, right? It's pointed toward these last things. It's pointed toward the renewal of creation. This life isn't all of it. What we're looking forward to, this is the last clause in the creed, in the Apostles' Creed, the life everlasting, is this eternal life, life no longer subject to death, of joyful fellowship with our triune God, together with all his saints and angels. It's community, it's fellowship. It's, you know, it's not an individual or isolated experience, right? Often, I think we imagine Christianity as being this basically sort of individual thing. I have this relationship with God, and then I join together with some other people who are also in relationship with God. Or at least American Christianity has tended this way for quite a long time. But I think what we see biblically, and I think what the Catechism is inviting us to imagine, is Christianity as a union with God, which necessarily unites us with other people who are joined to God. And out of that flows this life. And that, in its fullness, in its completion, is what we're headed for. It's relationship, it's celebration, it's worship with other people. And I, I heard quite a good lecture a while ago talking about C.S. Lewis's eschatology. But this person was pointing out, and I, I think this is helpful, that it's not only 
the vision of God that we look forward to and our transformation in beholding God, but also encountering God as God is reflected and seen in one another. And that perhaps, although this is a little speculative, perhaps others can see God or see something about God that I can't fully, and it's only all of us together who can entirely do this work of beholding God and entirely receive the joy of beholding God. I can offer you something in this vision of God, and you can offer me something in this vision of God, and the joy is increased and compounded and multiplied because of the way that we share it with one another. I like that. And I I hear a kind of echo of that vision here, I think. Singing his praises and serving him in a new creation. So what is our eternal destination? It's worship first. That's the most important thing we do in this life. It is also the most important thing we do in the world to come. But as in this life, worship overflows and encompasses everything we do, and there's going to be a new creation. And we're dwelling it, and we're, we're doing the life and the work of this new creation as an act of worship to God. In the book of Revelation, it describes not going back to the garden where Adam and Eve were originally given their work to do, but moving forward into this very garden-like city where God's people are gathered around him, where God dwells in their midst. This reminds us of the goodness of creation, right? We were talking about goodness of the body last week, but, but God's going to remake the world. And, and the biblical witness is, is a little bit complex on this. There are places where it's very much language of restoration. Consider Romans 8. There are places like Second Peter where it's language of being burnt up and made new. So how much continuity there is, how much unmaking and remaking there is, is a little hard to suss out. I think that's true with our bodies as well, right? There's, we talked about this last week. There's some kind of continuity. There's some kind of connection. There's some kind of relationship between my embodiedness in this life and in the resurrection. And yet we see this in Jesus. It's, it's also really different in certain ways. And that seems to be true about creation as a whole. But there is a new creation. Heaven and earth are joined, and we're there with God. So life everlasting is not mostly about it goes on forever, okay? It's about the character of that life. Question 120. How should you live in light of this promise of unending life? I should live in joyful expectation of the fullness of my transformation, soul and body, into the likeness of Christ, in the midst of suffering or in the face of hostility and persecution. I am sustained by the hope of a new heaven and earth, freed from Satan, evil, suffering, and death. That's really good. Last 
we, we, we touched on this final question, you can look at it here, it's question 118, um, how you should live in, as you await the resurrection of the body. It says, I should honor and care for the body. I should refrain from violence, disrespect, or sin that would harm or demean the body. Right? The acts of self-harm or self-violence. Um, our Christian medical ethics flow from this. The sense that what, what is appropriate as medical care is care that helps restore or deal with ways that the body has broken down as a result of sin and sickness and death and these results. It's helping the body function as best it can as it's designed to do. Treatments or surgeries that try to change the body and make it something else are not licit in Christian sense. So the, transhumanism is not a Christian option. Okay? I can't be like, wow, gills would be really cool. I'm going to install some of those. We can't do that quite yet, I don't think, but probably in my lifetime. Um, that's not a Christian option. Uh, how we think about sexuality, right? Um, I can't objectify others and make them objects of my pleasure. I can't let others do that to me. And that economically, right? I can't reduce others to units of production or units of consumption. I shouldn't participate in them doing that to me. I shouldn't encourage that. How we think about, I mean, this is going to shape how we deal with political questions. Uh, it doesn't necessarily solve our policy questions, but we can't be unconcerned about issues like um, provision of medical care to people because we think bodies matter and should be cared for. Uh, things like feeding and care for the poor. Bodily life matters. It, it's a thing we should be concerned about. And however we negotiate those kind of policy questions, they're not questions we can just say, oh, well, I don't care about that as Christians. The body matters. And yet, and yet, what this doctrine also does for us is it reminds us that the body is good and it matters, but it doesn't matter absolutely. It's going to be raised up again. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. Okay? Um, and so the, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body both calls me to treat my body and others' bodies with honor and care and gives me the freedom to be prepared to give my body up sacrificially, uh, martyrdom potentially, to say if, if I suffer... What does it say here? Hostility, persecution, suffering. I'm sustained by this future hope. This isn't it. And if, as an act of love for others, as an act of love for God, my body comes to harm, if I suffer death for the sake of Christ, um, that's okay. Like, in, in an ultimate sense, I'm okay because I am born through to this future life. And so I think we need to hold those things together, both the, the goodness and the value and the honor of the body, and that 
I don't have to protect my bodily life at all costs. That there are other things that matter more, and, and God's got it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I haven't done a lot of reading into this. It's been a while. Um, but I, maybe that's not the most helpful example because it's so extreme. I mean, I, I think we have a lot more immediate and practical, you know, even questions about how you think about elective surgeries and these kinds of things, how you think about um, certain medications and medical treatments. It's, it's the question, and this is clearer in some cases than others, but it, it's, is this helping restore the body to functioning or helping deal with some way that the body has broken down and give us a way to function within that? Um, or are we trying to make the body do something different than it's made for and call it to something else? Yeah, that, that there's a goodness in the body that we've got or the, the kind of body we have, right? Uh, even if mine happens to be broken in some particular way. That this, this kind of body is a good kind to have, that it wasn't a mistake. That, that there's a giftedness to that, to be discovered and received. Yeah. Jonathan, your hand was up. No, go ahead. Uh, I'm sure the Anglican Church has a variety of perspectives on that, as with most things. Uh, <laughs> um, I will offer a perspective which happens to be mine. Um, and may partly address that. I, I, I do think that freedom still has to be characteristic of us in the new creation. I think that's right. Um, there are competing accounts of what freedom is and what counts as human freedom, right? And I think a lot of it comes down to that. whether freedom rests primarily in sort of untrammeled choice. I have options and I select one of the options and not one or more other options, right? Um, to the extent that I understand, which I mostly don't, this seems to be Duns Scotus's view and some others following him, I think. Others, and, and this is a more kind of classical view that some people like Thomas Aquinas are picking up. It's freedom is I am unbound in the sense that I can do fully what I am made to do, right? So being bound by sin is a kind of bond. It's, it's a kind of failure of freedom. Choosing sin is in some sense actually a, a breaking down of my capacity of free will, um, that, that there's a, some sort of slavery there because I'm not living fully into my capacity as a, the kind of creature that I am. Um, and so doing what God says could be, because God's making me, could be doing an end run around my free will. Or it could be that my free will has finally been perfected and brought to its full capacity to willingly join in God's work 
offer myself to God and participate in the life that God calls me to and go on doing that. I mean, this is what we see in Jesus, I think. Right? Um, That Jesus being a human being has free will in the way that a human being does, which is fully, wholly submitted to the will of the Father in a way that doesn't in any way diminish or quash his freedom, his, his humanness, right? And whatever about being free is constitutive of us being human, he's got that. And so, again, there's a lot that's mysterious about this post-resurrection life. Really, all we've got in terms of specifics is, well, we've seen resurrected Jesus, or some, some people saw him and described it. Whatever kind of human freedom he has is presumably the kind we also have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah, there, there's philosophical debates about that within the Christian tradition, but I, I would agree with that personally. Um, I'd, there are probably multiple views that one could hold within the Christian tradition, within the Anglican tradition. Um, I have offered you the one that makes sense to me. I think on this mysteriousness of that future life, I found myself thinking back on last week's discussion, thinking of the verse in 1 John, um, where it says, Now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Therefore, everyone who has this hope purifies himself, even as he is pure. Right? So there's this current status of being made the children of God, there's this future hope that is mysterious in some way we, because we haven't seen it yet, because we haven't experienced it yet. But we have seen Jesus, and we know that we're going to see Jesus for who he really is. We're going to see God. And that somehow in coming to see God, we ourselves are transformed to be like God. And our living into the life of sanctification and offer our, offering ourselves up to God for transformation is leaning into that hope of beholding God and being made like God. I think that's quite beautiful. If there are not other questions on this section, I want to start moving forward into the section on prayer because I think that, that transitions us nicely into, okay, how do we live this life with God or toward God in the meanwhile. So you're going to have to turn some pages. Um, Part three begins on page 65. You can read that introduction in your own time. But I'd like us to begin with question 154 on page 66. So just kind of larger picture, traditional catechesis has three parts, the creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. It's what we believe, right, the creed. It's how we live and love in the world, the commandments, and then prayer is what joins it together, 
not just knowing about God or trying to obey God, but actually dwelling with God in relation to God. Prayer is where it gets, that relationship gets actionable in a kind of immediate way. Question 154, page 66. What is prayer? Prayer is turning my heart toward God to listen and to speak with him. I'd like to just ask you all for a moment to think about what, what's your experience with prayer? Um, what have you learned about prayer? How did you learn about prayer? Are there things you would like to learn about prayer? I don't want to share anything about your, your experience. Like how, how did you start learning about praying? What would that look like? Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, that, that's important, I think, how much the way we grow up, the, the kinds of prayer that we encounter shape our imagination for what prayer is or is not. Uh, and whether you grow up with a kind of predominantly liturgical tradition with a lot of written prayers, a lot of it's scripted for you, or it's very much extemporaneous, God is here, we're addressing him, we're having a conversation. That, that's what prayer looks like. And that both of them can leave you uncomfortable with the opposite one. Right? Um, great. Option three, good. Yeah, P- pray reading the Bible. Yeah, sure, yeah. kind of respond to it or let it spin out into prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Nice. Good. Yeah. I, often we experience them as intention. I don't think they have to be, and there are ways that both of these can be part of a prayer life, or all three of these, all four of these. I mean, we've got several options going now. Um, any of these things, I think, could legitimately be part of the life of Christian prayer, and there are ways that the liturgy as a structure can, can make space for and invite and encourage these various forms of prayer, though it doesn't always, right? But there are ways that you can have more extemporaneous praying um, and lectio divina and responding to the scriptures in this kind of prayer that's coming forth um, and even certain kinds of more charismatic expressions of prayer that it that can find their place with the liturgy as the, the frame. Um, now I, I'm going to suggest that this is not an either-or choice that we have to make. Um, but I think it's important coming to this, these questions about prayer to think about, okay, what are, what are my assumptions about what, what does and doesn't count as prayer, what prayer can look like, what's like good prayer versus eh, kind of less good prayer, and maybe some of those assumptions are good. Maybe some of them are less helpful and need to get restructured a little bit. Um, but, but these questions in, invite us to ask some questions of ourselves. What do I imagine prayer to mean? Thank you all for sharing. I appreciate that.
The catechism defines prayer very simply as turning my heart toward God. Right? Fundamentally, first and foremost, prayer is this turning this movement of the heart toward God. Well, that could include all sorts of things. To listen and to speak with him. Okay. That there's, there's some kind of listening and speaking. Perhaps there's also contemplative silence, right? But it, it's, it's some sort of communicative or relational turning toward a God who we believe is personal and to whom we can relate as persons made in his image. Question 155. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's good. That's interesting. I want to think about that a little more. Um, it would be interesting to look at the texts that they've cited and see if they hint at this listening as well as this speaking component. Anybody have thoughts about that, the listening to God? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, so you've got them. We were fasting and praying and worshiping together, and God said, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. Right? It's, it's out of this time of prayer that they're receiving things from communicative experiences that are going both directions. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we kind of only see one side of the conversation in that passage. Um, and so I, I take Jonathan's point that it, a lot of what we're given is the talking to God. Um, but we do also have these passages like, um, didn't we just read a Sunday or two ago when uh, Samuel hears Samuel, Samuel, and he, he's like, oh, Eli's calling me and runs in several times. <laughs> Eli's, I am not. <laughs> Go back to bed. Finally, oh, that would be God. <laughs> when he calls, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Right? Or, or this kind of, uh, oh, I love this in the Abraham and Isaac story. Abraham, both when Isaac says, Father, and he says, here I am, it's, it's this response of, I'm listening. Right? And when the angel of the Lord calls, Abraham, here I am. It's that kind of posture of willingness to receive from a God who does speak, right? And, and I think that's the fundamental theological conviction that undergirds this, but however you want to characterize it in relation to prayer as a category, that if, if we believe in the God of Scripture, we believe in a God who speaks, who communicates, who has things to say to us and doesn't just want to hear from us, although that too, as it turns out, perhaps even more strangely. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we're having a conversation with God or some kind of communicative encounter with God, it's not just prophecy. I mean, with Abraham, it's not prophecy. I don't think. I mean, I suppose you could include it as prophecy. Um, that doesn't seem like less of a category stretch than calling it prayer to me. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and, and you have this kind of dialogue within some of the Psalms, right, where God is speaking, we're speaking. So, if nothing else, if we're praying the Scriptures and we have this back and forth of we're, we're praying and we're, we're reciting God's words, right, that the Holy Spirit is speaking through these words while we're also making them our own and we're responding and speaking to God, that there, there's a lot of complex back and forth going on in prayer. Um, I guess the, the main thing I want to insist on is less a category question and more that the relationship is bidirectional. Both that we are crying out to, speaking out to, praising, requesting help from, um, asking questions of this God, but that we're doing that because God has first reached out to and called to us and that God is drawing us to so, and, and God wants to speak to his people. That's why we read the scriptures. Yeah. 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 D discerning God's voice and recognizing, is this God speaking? Am I just making stuff up? That, that's a separate problem and a, a question that we also have or probably should if we don't. Um, but it, it's premised on this theological conviction of a God who speaks and who, who wants to be in relationship. The God who comes after Adam and Eve fall and, and says, Adam, where are you? And initiates a conversation. It's not that Adam is like, oh no, I've fallen into sin. I need to go look for God. No, Adam is hiding behind a tree or something. God comes looking for him. And I would suggest this is the entire story of salvation as the scripture presents us, is a God who comes looking for us. And that prayer has to be rooted in that. Yeah. Yeah, good. I am. I am assuming that, yes. Um, I, I think the next que couple questions might help us with that. So let, let's do just a couple more questions here real quick. 155. What should you seek in prayer? In prayer, I should seek not only God's provision for my needs, but fellowship with God who made me for fellowship with himself. Okay, so again, the, the fundamental work that prayer is doing is this uniting with God. It's this being in relationship with God. Fellowship, koinonia, right? Um, communion with God. 156. How can you have fellowship with God? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus and union with him by the Holy Spirit, I have fellowship with God as his adopted child. I experience this in prayer, worship, God's word, the sacraments, and Christian community as I daily follow him by faith. So I, I think that's then getting to your question. Okay, is prayer this thing that I'm initiating, something I'm doing, I turn to God? Well, to the extent that it is, it's only because God has first come to me in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I've been united to him. Now that I've been able, I've, my free will has been liberated in some way. I've, I've been made able to respond to God in a way that I couldn't otherwise. 
Um, and I, because God is continually calling me to himself, I can turn to God in prayer. Yeah, I, I do want to underscore the, the priority of God's action. I, I think that's right. Um, and it's, I, th- I think it is implicit here, especially when you get to question 156, but maybe it isn't quite clear in the first question in the second. One thing, one thing to emphasize here, and we'll, we'll circle back to this uh, probably next week if we get into the, the opening of the Lord's Prayer, which I hope we do. But the confidence that we can have in prayer and in approaching God. All right, this is uh, Hebrews. There with, therefore, with confidence, let us come before the throne of grace. Because of its groundedness in Christ's death and resurrection and in our union with Christ, that it's in Christ and with Christ that we approach the Father. It's with this mediator, with this great high priest who has torn the veil, who has made it possible for us to have this access to God that we didn't have apart from that work, that we couldn't have apart from that work. And this turning to God, this desiring and seeking fellowship with God, this responding to God is rooted in this confidence we have in God's trustworthy action on our behalf to save us. This is a God who wants to be in relationship with his people. You see it all through the Old Testament, right? I'm, God gives the law, why? To make them a people in whose midst he can dwell. I'm going to put my tabernacle right in the middle of your camp. We're going to need to do some, some work so that that doesn't kill you, right? But, but, this is, but this is what God wants, and this is what we are for is for God to dwell in our midst, okay? And prayer is, is the response to that. It's the outward, the God who ultimately takes flesh and tabernacles among us to dwell, who wants to dwell in our midst so much that he becomes one of us so that we can become like him, so that we can be with him, so we can know him. That's the work prayer is doing. And so let's wrap up with question 157. Why should you pray? I should pray because God calls me to do so, because I was made for fellowship with him, because I need the help of his Holy Spirit, and because he has promised to answer the prayers of his people. So there again, prayer is obedience. God commands it. It's yearning and moving toward relationship that I'm created for. It's our source, our, what sustains us, what helps us, what enables us to live this life with God. And it's an act of trust that we have this confidence that God is someone we can have confidence in, that God is trustworthy. He has promised to answer the prayers of his people. That's what I have to say. Any last thoughts? We'll pick up next week with question 158.